0: Hello everybody and welcome to The Conversation, I am John Iderola. You might know me from The Damage Report, but based on our view numbers, you probably don't. But I'm very glad to be here today on The Conversation with you because we've got two awesome individuals we're gonna be interviewing over the course of the next half hour. A little bit later on, if you stick around, we're gonna have James Mackler running for Senate in Tennessee. We're gonna talk about that, facing a contested Democratic primary, also contested Republican primary since Lamar Alexander was not chose not to run for re-election. So. That's gonna be a really good talk. But before we get to that, we're gonna start off now with Gabe Tobias, co-founder and national training director of the Movement School. Gabe, welcome to the conversation. Hey, John. Good to have you you here. I believe we've spoken before on The Damage Report, actually. We did, it looked kinda like this. We did, exactly. So (laughs) um, look, I wanna talk about the organization, and I wanna talk about the current campaign. But to give people an idea, if they're not familiar with you and your work and the Movement School, what are some of the sort of noteworthy candidates that, that you've worked with before?
1: Um, so my background, I come from a community organizing background. I worked with ACORN back in the day when that was, was still around, working in, uh, mostly in, in California there. I um, spent some time on the Obama campaign in 2008. Um, then I worked with in 2014 with Zephyr Ticha when she had her amazing run in here in New York against Andrew Cuomo, kind of prefiguring a lot of what we saw in 2016 and afterwards in terms of you know inspiring progressives running grassroots campaigns. Um, and then just last year, I worked with um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and her an upstart campaign against Joe Crowley here in New York, um, which is where uh, the Movement School came from. Kind of arising from that campaign, and worked with Justice Democrats particularly during that time.
0: Okay, so those are some of the biggest names, obviously, and um, it it seems like you you learned quite a bit there. And then, now we've got the Movement School. So for people who are not familiar with it, what what is the the objective, what is the mission statement of the Movement School?
1: Yeah, so basically Movement School comes out of the idea that we need to find a way in in our political infrastructure to build. Uh, you know, people power tra- translating into electoral power, right, to take power away from the donor class, consultant class, and bring it back to movement organizations and people. Um, and what we what we center really in movement school is leadership development. Um, so doing uh, an intensive training work with people who come from movement backgrounds to prepare them to work in electoral space. So folks who've worked on issue campaigns or community organizing campaigns um, to, be, to take some of the highest you know, the high, high uh, best tools we have available on the electoral side to win campaigns, like what we saw with AOC, like what we saw with Bernie in 2016, um, and across the country, you know, other campaigns have inspired us from Abdul Sayed in Michigan, Beto O'Rourke in Texas, Jess King in, in Pennsylvania, some really amazing stories in 2018 that kind of prefigured our, our move into into movement school here.
0: Okay, and so now you, you've had a little bit of time. Um, how many people so far have gone through this training?
1: So we've done two cohorts in uh, just in this past year, um, and the cohorts are super intensive. So it's a 10-week-long program. We're covering every aspect of, of campaigns, um, covering digital, covering finance, covering um, comms and, and field work. Uh, and we've now had 71 fellows graduate during this past year um, in between the two cohorts. And those are folks from coming all across the country, so 30 different states, um, there's a majority I think we've got 83 percent are uh, people of color who graduated from our, our cohort 73 percent women um, and 73 percent people from working class backgrounds so a very diverse group and really amazing inspiring people it's been such a pleasure to work with them over this past year
0: and so I know that the movement school is considered um, a sister organization to the justice Democrats where that's explicitly these are candidates they're running uh, around the country uh, and uh, so I'm curious I, I know that the justice Democrats they're, they' they get people who apply to be you know endorsed by the organization, but they're also they're out there looking for the right sorts of candidates. Um, and so for the movement school, are you looking at mainly a lot of people are trying to get in and you're sort of weeding through applications? Or are you, um, are you going around the country and identifying people that could benefit from this additional training in various parts of the country?
1: So we do a little bit of both. Uh, we have an open call for applications um, for each of our cohorts. We actually have a call open right now. So folks who are interested in applying. Um, it's open until January tenth. You can find us at movementschool.us uh, folks who want to apply to the winter cohort. So we have an open call. I think we've had a little over two thousand, the exact number, over two thousand applicants last year. Wow. Um, and over them, only seventy-one accepted. So it's a very low acceptance rate. So we have open call, but as well, we do a lot of very focused outreach because we want to reach communities, particularly communities that are underserved by progressive training in the past. So people who are in rural areas, people who are outside the kind of normal progressive circles in New York, D.C., California, uh, want to make sure that, that everywhere in the country we have people who can access the training. So we got fellows who are in rural Alaska or rural Mississippi coming to us from, from all, all sorts of wow. different places.
0: So wow, a lot of demand there. I mean, that, that sounds like an Ivy School acceptance rate. When you initially said that um, there was this this open period right now, I thought, well, you know, what, I'm I'm fascinated. I would actually love to take the training, but I have a feeling I probably wouldn't make it through your your uh, criteria. Um, but for the people who do, those who are, who are selected, what are some of the things that they'll learn over the course of those ten weeks?
1: Um, so what what's what was really exciting about this when we started was thinking about how we take folks who've been, who spent so much time, like some of the people we work with on, on the AOC campaign, um, folks who came from the 2016 Sanders campaign, um, and take their experience, their expertise, and bring it to a new generation. So that's kind of the model we work with. Um, and that covers a broad spectrum of, of topics. So we do everything from high level, you know, how to prepare a campaign plan, how to put together a budget how to put together a fundraising plan, um, down to nitty-gritty stuff. So, like, how do you think about um, the actual tactics you use during your GOTV, your get-out-the-vote period, uh, you know, do you use mail, do you use digital, do you use TV? Um, How do people think about digital security on campaigns? How do you cover, um, you know, some of the the broader tactics? But we also have a very strong ideological foundation. That's really important in movement school. This isn't just how you win campaigns, but why you run them in the first place. Um, so thinking about the history of the progressive movement, understanding the current situation in the country. Um, we have amazing my colleague of the Justice Democrats, Wali Shahid, um, comes in and talks you know a lot about what the what this current moment and the crisis means in, in that context. Um, and then just how you know how the the different pieces of our movement work, whether that be immigration work, criminal justice work, um, foreign policy work, how that feeds into why we run these campaigns, And that's at all different levels of work.
0: Okay, so you, you told us a little bit about your past, some of the campaigns you've worked on. And I'm sure that similarly, the people who are organizing movement school probably have a lot of that same sort of experience. We've now had um, basically one cohort of Justice Democrats go through in uh, 2018. And there were a number of, of big wins, way more than I think anyone would have predicted going into it. Um, but there were losses as well. and so. Um, you've got your background. You're also seeing all of these different candidacies being run. What are some of the lessons that the movement is picking up from these candidates who are running, at least to some extent, through the model um, that you're teaching at the Movement School?
1: Yeah, that that was a critical piece of of, of of the sort of coming together of Movement School was learning from the lessons in 2018, learning from 2016 and, and previous years as well. Um, I think that the critical piece is that we can't underestimate the need for people who've had hands-on uh, work with, with a lot of these sorts of skills. You know, it, it's easy to have it you know, sort of find inspiring people who can do one particular thing. But for a campaign to work, you really have to have people across every area of work, right? You have to have people who can help candidates raise money. You know how difficult it is for someone who's not a millionaire, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> who doesn't know. A bunch of wine cave, you know, billionaire friends who can help <laughs> the fundraisers. Um, you have to really grind it out and, and you know, and work both your digital side, your email side, you know, your deep in call time. That's a really important piece of the campaign. Otherwise, you can't pay your staff, you can't ads, do all that that sort of thing. Um, you have to have a really effective digital program that isn't just about enthusiasm. That's actually about understanding how different platforms work and how to make the most out of your your supporters. Um, you have to have a really good uh, effective communications team, right? They can put together effective policy plans. It's a lot of different pieces work, I think what we learn is that you can't underestimate that sort of broad spectrum of skills that a campaign needs to succeed. And you also need to understand how to link what a campaign is doing with existing local grassroots work, right? That was what's so effective about AOC. And her run here in New York City, was that that linked with groups who were not just thinking about national issues, but very local issues as well, right? Groups who are working against gentrification, groups who are working around criminal justice reform here in, in New York City, groups who are working against, uh, you know, rezoning problems here in New York mm-hmm. City, stuff that you wouldn't necessarily catch your national headlines, but it's what mobilized people to come to come to your campaign in the first place, and that's really important for candidates to learn, whether it's Congress, governor's races, local races, and we have folks, you know, our graduates going on to every every level, so if people work on Presidential campaigns all
0: the way down to city city council races. And uh, once they go out, the, the people who've been through the program are you are you still in communication with them? Or is is the program sort of like as it sends out students? Is, is it also learning from their experiences and integrating that into the the teaching of future cohorts?
1: yeah yeah actually it's one of the most, most fun parts out of it, i think is that mm-hmm. we have this community that's grown up around our, our our two cohorts now and our third one coming up soon um that's really building out their own sets of of relationships and networks you know helping each other get jobs we have a slack that's you know constantly people are posting in where we're talking about all the things that are happening in the country right now um and different ideas from, from different places and people and our goal as we're sort of as we're growing this program um, and expanding going into, into next year and honestly and looking beyond 2020, right? Whatever happens in November, we know we're gonna need to mobilize movement either with hopefully, you know, democratic president, democratic Congress to make sure that we do actually pass the big, you know, big picture vision ideas that we need passed, or you know, worst case scenario, if we don't get those kind of changes that we have able to really push back and, and hold at at local and, and state levels. Um and that's, yeah, that, that community piece, I think, is is really critical, and that's something that we've learned, I think, about the learning process, right? You have your skills transfer, but beyond that, you have the environment in which people are learning, and that that be one that reinforces movement values as well. Yeah. Um, that, that piece is critical, right? It's, it's, it's I think, uh, you know, when we imagine our future, that, that's really what it rests on.
0: You know, so I know that you've got Justice Democrats, and there are a couple of organizations sort of like it that are that are providing this assistance to candidates, many of which they've never run before. You've got the Movement School, which is helping to train up people who are gonna work on these campaigns around the country, but I know that in, in other areas. Sort of like left electoral infrastructure, it it doesn't necessarily, it's not necessarily as robust as what you can expect if you run sort of through in the establishment lane. Um, You know, some of these organizations that would like to work work with these primary challengers are being blacklisted by some of the party, um, like the DCCC, things like that. What are some other areas of left infrastructure that you think sort of similarly need to be developed to give these candidates and the people working for their campaigns the, the best chance?
1: Yeah, no, I mean, it's still a really challenging terrain out there. I think we've, we've made leaps and bounds in the last four years and two years um, to, to a place where folks are now running and being encouraged to run and having some infrastructure around them. Um, but it's nowhere near where it needs to be. I mean, exactly, we're talking about the you know, DCCC blacklist. Um, you know folks, we have one of our, our fellows on one of the uh, Justice Democrats campaigns, and Marie Newman, amazing candidate, mm-hmm. right? And her opponent is a, you know anti-abortion Democrat somehow. Um, and, you know, people were, were forced out of, of working with Marie in, in her run because of that, that blacklist. Um, so I think there really needs to be a connection between what I've met, what I call the three pieces of, of effective campaign. Um, you need to have your know, people, first of all, right? You need to have well-trained people, and that's where movement school focuses. Um, you need to have the relationships, vertical relationships between your on-the-ground organizing work and the bigger picture policy pieces, right? So your ability to talk about Green New Deal, Medicare for All, um, ending mass incarceration, foreign policy, progressive um, foreign policy as well, and tying that together with with your with your local organizing work. And then the last piece, you know, you, you need donors, and um, I think that's where we are still far behind. Um, there are a lot of progressive donors out there. We, you know, you saw what was the Bernie Sanders, uh, donor fundraising numbers this last quarter, right? He out, outraised Buttigieg and, and Biden, who obviously have a lot more wealthy donors who are ready to support them. I mean, he did with grassroots people, so they're out there. But that network hasn't really come down to, to to the congressional and local level yet. Yeah, I mean that's something that I think we we're working on a little bit this year. We're we're getting there piece by piece, but that's something that definitely needs to be built out. and looking forward to to future success that you know you can run for for office, uh, you know, in the state legislature and be able to tap into that network yeah. that that sees the the, the potential there.
0: know, I'm curious. One other. I guess a thing that can be built on over time. If you, if you, you know, work your way up through the party or whatever and you do things the way the, the establishment, the party leadership wants you to do, you can expect theoretically endorsements and people to come and campaign for you to help, organize bundlers and things like that. On, for more leftist candidates, you don't necessarily have a whole lot of incumbents that can do that for you. But in 2018, we had a number members of the squad and otherwise and Justice Democrats winning. Um, are we seeing the beginnings of a sort of network where those who have managed to get in through, you know, just terrible odds have managed to get in are now making it a little bit easier for some of the candidates who are sort of following in their wake?
1: Yeah, you know, I think the window's moving. I think the window's moving. You know, When I see um, Alejandro Costa-Cortez raising money for Jessica Cisneros, right, I think that's a, a great example of someone who was able to get in 2018, knows how hard it is to beat an incumbent, even as terrible as, as Henry Coyer is done in Texas 28, um, and seeing that you know, they have to then help bring in the next generation. That's you know, I think that that's something that comes in her case from really from deeply held values about what it means to be a representative of movement in, in Congress. But it's also a practical concern, right? She needs a bigger squad and allies. Yeah. but yeah, but you have to have folks in there, and I think that. Um, a big piece of that, and then, and that kind of ties to the bigger picture policy points, is what we saw after 2018 was how afraid incumbents were, right? These incumbents who felt untouchable for years and years and years, even ones who weren't necessarily that terrible on policy, um, they were nervous. They were, they were really afraid that they might get primaried out. Um, and that fear is just as powerful, even if there isn't a primary challenger, right? Because they're willing to then back a Green New Deal or Medicare for all. Or in another other progressive policy points without there even need to be that that sort of um immediate threat to their their power um but we need to make sure that infrastructure is continuing to grow because the more of that we have the more real that threat is so that yeah. even if we can't win every single race Every single comment's nervous, yeah. right? and that's that's critical.
0: And that can influence their behavior, You know, even outside of them potentially losing uh, re-election. Uh, Gabe Tobias, uh, as always, uh, great to talk to you, uh, co-founder and national training director of the Movement School. I really appreciate you uh, coming here and everything you're doing.
1: Absolutely, John, it's great to be here. Thanks so much.
0: Thank you. We are gonna take a short break here, but stick around because we've got another interview coming up after this. Welcome back to The Conversation, we're joined now by Senate candidate in Tennessee, James Mackler. Welcome to The Conversation.
2: Hey John, it's good to be here, thank
0: you. Good to have you here, excited to learn more about your candidacy, about the state of the race. For people who might not be familiar with you, what's your background, past political work, what are you bringing to this candidacy?
2: Throughout my life I've chosen service. I was practicing law on September 11, 2001, I left my law practice because I felt called to serve. Walked into an army recruiting station and said, sign me up. The uh, recruiter suggested the JAG Corps because of my uh, legal background, but there was a helicopter poster on the wall, and I'm a sucker for that kind of stuff. So I said, put me in the fight, send me to flight school. Uh, I had to get an age waiver because I was already 30, but I uh, joined the 101st Airborne Division, learned to fly Black Hawk helicopters, deployed to Iraq, spent a year overseas, came back, and then Switched to the JAG Corps at that point, prosecuted military sexual assaults, war crimes. So, I spent about 10 years active duty Army before I returned to private practice mm. and began practicing law again. And I'm running now for the same reason I joined the Army. I feel like our country's in a time of crisis and it's time to serve again.
0: You know, there's a lot that I want to talk to you about, but you brought up your service. And so, I have to ask a question about that. I'm curious because uh, all while I was growing up, it, it was always believed that of the things a person can bring to a candidacy, that's going to make them appealing to a lot of people, is going to be military service. And you know, for a candidate who might want to have some crossover appeal, like to the Republicans, like they've always you know respected the troops and all of that. Um, during the time of Trump, he has felt apparently very free to attack members of uh, of the military, to sort of mock John McCain and things like that. Do you believe that the way that Republicans are viewing? Uh, Vets might be changing as a result of that, or do you think there's always going to be sort of an appeal to someone who has served their country?
2: Well, I can tell you as I travel the state, my track record of service appeals to people all across the state. I'm an outsider, I'm a veteran, I'm a man of faith. That really does appeal to folks everywhere I go, because it's an indication of a desire to serve. And that's the only reason anyone should be running for office, is to serve, and that's, that's really what motivates me.
0: Okay, so let's let's talk about what you want to do while serving then. You become senator, what are some of the priorities that, that you wanna pursue?
2: Tennessee has become really the epicenter for a lot of the worst effects of the Trump administration. We have more rural hospitals that have closed per person than any other state. The opioid epidemic is ravaging our communities and there's no national solution. And the trade war hurts our state more than more than any other. What I wanna do is be an advocate for the people of Tennessee. My opponents have promised to be Blank checks for an administration, which is causing all of these problems. Uh, The choice is going to be very clear, an Iraq war vet who stepped up to serve after 9 11, or someone who wants to be a blank check. And I believe the the job of any senator is to stand up to a president when they're wrong and support them when they're right. We need to be working on all those issues. And I'll go on for just a second because a, a particularly important issue for me is service. We need to be doing everything we can to encourage national service on the broadest possible scale.
0: Okay, um, any particular ways you'd like that to, uh, to sort of be formulated?
2: Yeah, absolutely. And the reason I bring it up is you know, I found through my service that I had a chance to meet with and learn from a diverse group of people who I never would have met otherwise. It got me outside of my bubble. Service, well beyond military service, all kinds of service, allows people to get outside of those bubbles. It creates bonds, it allows us to get a stake in our communities, it can pay for college, it can help you to learn and trade. And unfortunately, three times now, This administration has proposed budgets that would have zeroed out service programs like AmeriCorps and student loan forgiveness programs for public service. Those programs should be considered small investments in much more robust programs for public service.
0: So in your race, you there formally there is a Republican incumbent. He's not Lamar Alexander. He's not going to be running for re-election. And I mean, control of the Senate is always important, but it seems particularly important going into this presidential election. And so I'm assuming there's probably pretty high hopes for your candidacy. Now we know in 2018, Marsha Blackburn, the Republican, she won in Tennessee. What tells you that 2020 is going to be different at the Senate level in Tennessee than 2018 was?
2: As I travel the state and talk with people about the last cycle, I'm always surprised at how shocked people are to be reminded that Governor Bredesen got 44% of the vote against Marsha Blackburn. That means I need six points more in a presidential year, in a time when things aren't getting better in Tennessee, building on the race that Governor Bredesen ran. People are responding to my track record. I believe that as what is gonna be high tide of voter turnout, we have an opportunity to make a real change in the state.
0: So you know, obviously, you you can you can only directly control your own campaign inside of Tennessee. But as you say, like this is a presidential election. Obviously, it matters who the candidate is going to be. If it were up to you nationally, what are some of the issues you would want the presidential election to be focused on to give you the best chance of winning in Tennessee?
2: Well, it's not a matter of what gives me the best chance to win in Tennessee. It's what's best for the American people and for the people of Tennessee. And we need to remain focused on health care. Above all else, as I mentioned, Tennessee has serious health care problems. Uh, we have 1.3 million people with pre-existing conditions. That is a third of all non-elderly adults in Tennessee who could lose health care if we lost the right to protect pre-existing conditions. We have this opioid epidemic that is ravaging our communities and there's no national solution. Health care costs are going up. People are being left behind in Tennessee perhaps more than any other state. So if there were one issue that I think needs to be at the top of the national agenda, it's gotta be healthcare.
0: I I mean, I couldn't agree more that that should be up at the top. And I know at the presidential level, there's a couple different sort of approaches to healthcare that candidates are sort of staking out. You have um, some who are looking to sort of uh, strengthen the ACA, others wanna replace it with Medicare for All. Um, What would you like to see done? If we get a Democratic president, you join a Democratic Senate, and something can actually be passed, what would you like to see happen in terms of healthcare?
2: Well, as you know, we've spent the last two years watching the administration and Mitch McConnell do everything they can to take away health care through the legislature and through the courts. The president saw an eight hundred and forty-five billion dollar cut from Medicare. We need people in the presidency and in the Congress who are gonna fight to protect health care. Now, you know, whether or not Medicare for all is the solution, I don't know. But we certainly need to allow people to buy in at a younger age, perhaps 50 years old, see how it goes. If it goes well, we can expand from there. Right now, the people I'm running against will be blank checks for this administration that wants to destroy Medicare and take away healthcare.
0: So let's talk about those blank checks. So there's at least a few potentially. Um, Does there seem like there's a clear front runner? Does it matter to you which it ends up being? It doesn't
2: matter to me. I'm gonna keep doing what I'm doing. I'm traveling the state. I'm meeting with people listening to what they're not getting from their elected officials. Either one of them are gonna be bad for the people of Tennessee. They have essentially sworn allegiance to the Trump administration. As opposed to the Constitution, something I raised my right hand and swore an oath to and continue to abide by.
0: So, uh, you know, I, I have to admit, I, I, I have not been able to pay much attention to the Republican side of the primary in Tennessee. Is there is there really not one who has criticized Trump, has uh, staked out a different position on an important issue, really any sort of show of opposition to his agenda?
2: No, no, they're in a white hot race to the bottom to to you know prove fealty to this president. Uh, each one trying to earn the president's love more than the other. That's what we're facing here in Tennessee, a very clear choice between that approach and someone who believes in service.
0: Wow. And uh, where can people find out more about your campaign?
2: I encourage all of the, you know, your TYT viewers, go to jamesmackler.com, learn more about the campaign, donate at jamesmackler.com slash donate, share things about the campaign on social media. We will win this if everyone wanting change joins the team to make it happen.
0: Okay, James Mackler, thank you for joining us.
2: Thank you, John, appreciate it.
0: And thank you all at home for watching the conversation, we got an awesome post game coming up. Anna's gonna be back, we're gonna see if we can track down Jank and so you can look forward to that after this.